So the theme of the talk tonight is working with the rainbow of thoughts and emotions <laughs> as a foundation for our speech practice and for anyone, anyone who is listening later to this talk and it wasn't present, there is the very beautiful, large, powerful rainbow in clear sight nearby. So I'll say that again. Uh, Working with thoughts and emotions or practicing with thoughts and emotions as a foundation for our speech practice. And I'll invite you again to cultivate that combination of inner presence and uh, outer presence being with yourself as well as being with the theme of the talk. So I came across um, a text from an old uh, Buddhist manual from about 1500 years ago called the Vasudhi Mago or the Path of Purification. And it basically at one point in talking about speech practice says we have to have patience. It takes time to develop these abilities. And for example, some of the uh, challenges of our speech related, for example, to the four guidelines of truthfulness, helpfulness, coming out of a warm heart and having appropriateness or timing, that these are only fully eliminated with full awakening that the roots of the problems for this, and there's a whole typology with, with our, at the first level of awakening, we don't tell untruths anymore. But on the way to that, we do. So I'm not so much wanting to teach this as a um, teaching to take as presented, but more just to uh, understand that I think as we've seen that we go against a lot of very strong conditioning and we, uh, we need patience for this practice. And we need to really keep coming back over and over again to work with this practice. There's a, there's a way of understanding practice which can be helpful, which I like a lot, which is very simple. And it um, really goes like this that our entire lives really can be understood in the context of practice as having just three aspects. And they're actually quite related to what Oren was presenting in terms of view, intention, and attention. And I, I sometimes think that all we do all the time is we try to be aware of what's happening. We try to be mindful of what's present on the basis of our mindfulness, on the basis of our awareness of what's happening, we summon our best wisdom and compassion and we set an intention. In other words, on the basis of knowing what's happening and running it through our, as it were, our internal system of trying to be as wise and compassionate as possible, we develop an intention, and then we act. You know, and when we're practicing, often this happens quite quickly, intuitively, automatically. But I think it's helpful to see that, in a sense, this is maybe all that we're doing uh, moment to moment for the rest of our lives. We're trying to be aware. We're trying to set an intention as, that's as wise as we can, and then we act in some way. And so it's quite simple in that sense. And so we can... We want to, therefore, if that's valid, we want to give a lot of attention to cultivating our mindfulness. We want to give a lot of attention to developing our wisdom and our abilities to be compassionate. We want to know how to set intentions uh, in a clear way. And then, of course, we have to carry out the intentions skillfully. That's where a lot of the work we're doing with speech comes in. But it can be seen as quite simple. And there's a, there's a wonderful story uh, from the Zen tradition that I think is, is quite similar in understanding. There was a Zen teacher, I think from the ninth century, 
who was asked, I think, as Zen teachers sometimes are, maybe near the end of his life, basically, often there's a whole tradition of asking, what does it all mean, right? At the end of a great teacher's life, and they asked the Zen teacher, basically, what is the nature of enlightenment? And there were, people were waiting for the response, and they, you know, you never know what you might get. You might get something more metaphysical, like enlightenment is the blinding insight into the interpenetration of inner and outer in the ultimate matrix of the con- all conditions merging as one in ultimate understanding. But he didn't say that. You know, he, and he, he could have said something very complicated, metaphysical, beautiful, rooted in ancient text, whatever. He said, what is the meaning of enlightenment? He said, appropriate response. That's all. Appropriate response. And and I think that goes along with that little model that I introduced, that what we're looking for is appropriate response, moment to moment. And yet we can see that we can't really develop appropriate response unless we have wisdom, unless we have compassion, and then we have to go backward unless we have mindfulness, unless we know what's happening. And what that appropriate response permits is, I think, what we were exploring earlier this afternoon, uh, which is, I would say, another way of talking about the essence of our practice, which is, in a sense, taking radical responsibility for our own experience. It's one way of saying it. Meaning that we don't attribute responsibility for what I'm experiencing entirely to others or to external events. And in particular, we take responsibility for thoughts and emotions. And and it's interesting, we can actually look at that word responsibility and say that responsibility for thoughts and emotions doesn't mean that I made them happen or I made them happen this way, but it means I have the ability to respond. And I have the, I have the um, capability of not taking my thoughts and emotions as fate or as my karma somehow or as necessarily leading to suffering. And that's really what our practice does. We carve out through mindfulness a space of awareness that creates freedom. Freedom not to to follow old habitual patterns. That's the essence of our practice, that kind of radical responsibility. And it's another way of saying this, and this is really, I think, the kind of teachings that we get in the Buddhist tradition and in many spiritual traditions, what it's saying is that our ultimate happiness and well-being is not ultimately dependent on external conditions. It's a radical claim because I think much of the conditioning of our society is to say we only get happiness when we have certain external conditions or certain external uh, objects. A whole economy is set up on that basis, right? Where would the economy be if people did not think that their happiness was dependent on external objects? We'd be in trouble. I'm joking some, but you get the point that we, you know, that uh, they're all the, what does advertising do? In many ways, it suggests that we have needs for things that we didn't know we had needs for. I'll tell you a funny story. For me, it's funny. It may not be funny for you. But um, about 10 years ago, uh, my, my friend Diana Winston, who's also a teacher at Spirit Rock, we led a uh, class in the East Bay in, in, um, near here, Oakland, Berkeley area, 
Um, we called it uh, greed management. Kind of along the lines of anger management. We didn't have very many people sign up. <laughs> In fact, we had two teachers and five students. <laughs> but we were totally into it, so it didn't really matter. We were interested in learning. And we explored greed in all sorts of ways. You know, we, we, I think one night we all ate chocolate together. and um, We explored our, how greed manifested in, in our... We, a lot of it was trying to just be mindful. What is this? You know, we saw some of the nature of greed. For our final class, we had what we called our final exam. There was a newly opened Bed, Bath, and Beyond. Some of you may know this. It's in El Cerrito Plaza. Many of you know this. Some of you may. Anyone shop there? Some of you. And it was newly opened. And our final exam was to do 30-minute silent walking meditation in the newly opened Bed, Bath, and Beyond. It was really interesting. One of... I had never been in a bed, death, and beyond before. And it was really fascinating. What I especially got conscious of was that people had invented objects that I could purchase for needs that I never had any idea existed. You know, one of the ones I remember was something to create more space for storage on top of one's television set. You know, they're all, all the, anyway. So, so we, we kind of take a different course here, you know, in, in, in working with thoughts and emotions. And the approach that we're taking in relation to speech is pointing to how we can take responsibility for our own experience and really ultimately find the deepest roots of our happiness and well-being in our own more inner presence, you know, and this, this is again a strong claim, you know, it's, it's um, because we so often attribute responsibility outward, whether to other people or to finding happiness in external events or conditions, and it's not at all to say that external events or conditions don't have a large, often a large impact on us, and often a very strong impact on us, or that other people may act very unskillfully towards us. It's not to say that someone else's actions uh, may not have a big impact on us. But with practice, we can work with it. Another way of talking about this sense of taking radical responsibility for one's own thoughts and emotions is to say that everything is workable. Again, a very strong claim. You know, again... Some things are very difficult. For me, I've uh, reflected on this a lot because I've, I've been very involved over 20 years with a Buddhist Peace Fellowship and with wanting to deal with social issues. You know, been very important. I'm very interested in the intersection of inner work and outer response. And I've, I've, I've been interested in kind of asking the question, well, if our ultimate happiness is inner... Why do anything about social conditions? Why not just teach everyone to deal with their inner lives? Interesting question for someone inclined towards activism or inclined towards helping others, right? It's, an it's a very interesting question. And what I, you know, it, it, it's actually a deep question, which I won't go into so much now, but to say that one of the things that occurred to me is that with certain conditions... it's very hard for most people to have their experience be workable, even if that's possible. Another way to say it, do you remember that teaching of the two arrows and how we, we have a certain kind of pain and yet we distinguish that from suffering and say that the pain 
we might say, is sometimes a given, but we say that suffering is optional. It's another, kind of another way of saying the same thing as we've been saying. And one way I've come to look at that is to say that let's suppose that there are certain kinds of pain. Let's suppose from, you know, I don't know, from um, injustice and imprisonment. You know, there was the example that we were given earlier today. It's very, you know, uh, we'll call that the first arrow. And it's very, very common for people who have that first arrow to shoot the second arrow of suffering. It's, it's extremely likely in certain instances. And so it's an act of compassion to try to respond to the first arrow because people will tend to shoot second arrows. Even though there are examples like those of Tibetan long-time meditators who are in, you know, who find themselves in prisons and who keep their balance and keep their stability. That's not so common, right? So, but it's possible. Because ultimately what we're pointing to is this ultimate freedom that comes with being aware and being present. That's really what we're pointing to. And also coming out of the discussion earlier today, I think we can also see that often it's very hard not to be unautomatic. You know, there are a lot of things that happen. It might be I'm shot by the first arrows. Some, someone says something nasty to me in a certain way, perhaps someone who I have a long history with. It's very hard for me not to be reactive. You know, it's, and we have to acknowledge that we all have a lot of conditioning. You know, and we all have certain stimuli, which if they came up in our lives, it'd be very hard not to go down a road where we've gone many times. You know, and one, one example that I can give from my own experience that I've at a period when I was looking a lot into uh, the nature of uh, reactions and particularly reactions which lead to blaming and judging, which is one kind of reaction that's very common. And... I was, uh, work, I was going to meetings at work with a person who was an authority figure uh, about every two, two weeks. And this person, I thought, um, how should I say it, reframe it like Oren was suggesting us to, to do. I would often have the experience of saying something and then noticing that the other person said things which were on a totally different topic. If I was attributing responsibility to the other person, I was saying I wasn't being listened to. You know, we could, and it's important to be able to rephrase it in ways which talk about our own experience. And this was a common experience that a lot of people had with this person. You know, that, and so I would have the experience of saying, that I'd like to talk about this, and then a minute later, he'd be talking about something else. And I found myself in that situation when that happened very often um, withdrawing emotionally to what I later called a place of distanced moral superiority emotionally withdrawn. (laughs) Um, Feeling quite self-righteous. But but what, what I'm bringing that up is because that kept on happening. You know, and so when we're looking at this question of responsibility for our own experience, we also have to acknowledge that we all have conditioning. And a lot of it's pretty strong, meaning a certain stimulus occurs, we're very likely to go to some place. And we may not feel very free. We may not feel, you know, we may not feel that I have a lot of freedom to do any differently than react, Right? And I think we have to acknowledge that degree of conditioning as being there. But what's our practice about? Our practice is about deconditioning. Through mindfulness, through a lot of different tools. So that freedom with whatever happens isn't something that simply is always there for all of us all the time. In many ways, it's the fruit of our practice. 
You know, as I imagine that we all know in some ways. And right at the heart of this practice of working with our conditioning is being skillful with thoughts and emotions and practicing with thoughts and emotions, crucial for our speech practice. If we can't be skillful with the thoughts and emotions that arise, how will we be skillful with our speech? So it's a foundation. And what I'd like to talk about are a few ways to practice with thoughts and emotions, including challenging ones, and then make the connection at the end to our speech practice. That's what I want to do. And then tomorrow morning in the meditation at 9, we'll do a guided practice working with thoughts and emotions. We'll really be introducing our practice with thoughts and emotions in more detail so that it can really be something that we more and more uh, practice when it comes up during the day because it's really, it's really crucial. So a key tool that we use for practicing with thoughts and emotions is mindfulness. And I'll talk in a moment in a, about a very helpful model for using mindfulness to work with thoughts and emotions. But I first want to say that uh, mindfulness is something we practice, but it's not always available. And one of the, one of the reasons that it's often hard to be skillful in our speech is that often we can't really be mindful of what's happening. And often, and we can't really be mindful, essentially, if we're out of balance. One of the reasons that our reactive thoughts and emotions, like my example with with the boss, uh, or any of our reactions are so challenging, is that they're just happening, and it's very hard to be mindful of them. Like, Like we say, in certain situations, mindfulness is accessible, but when we're reactive, it's almost the definition of it, is we go into habitual mode and mindfulness goes out the window. You know, it's, very, it's very hard. So the first thing to do when, we have, uh, when we're practicing with thoughts and emotions, particularly challenging ones, is to ask, can I be aware of what's happening? Am I in a balanced place? Because we're not going to be able to have an appropriate response if we're not somewhat balanced. We'll just be on automatic. And so that question actually demands mindfulness itself. We have to be mindful that we're not mindful. Or actually, or that we have very little mindfulness. Actually, we have some just to know that we're out of balance. So being out of recognizing that we're out of balance is a huge part of practice. And then we can, if we're out of balance, meaning I can't be mindful, it's very hard for me to act wisely or appropriately, then my first responsibility may be to try to come back to balance, which I can do in all sorts of ways. You know, and uh, I can come back to balance... Um, For example, maybe talking to a friend or maybe I meditate for half an hour and I'm out of balance at minute one and at minute 30, I'm more in balance. Or we take a walk or we're with nature or we listen to music or we um, do something physical. I had a regular practice after those meetings, which took a number of hours, I would come home and I would immediately go swimming. That helped me come back to balance because a lot some what we can see, and I guess part related to the emphasis on the body, is that a lot of times our imbalance or our reactions have a very strong bodily aspect. You know, Oren earlier today used the word flooded. I don't know if you know that word. It's sometimes used in psychology to mean that like our body is just full of these reactions. You know, it's almost like I don't know, could be all sorts of hormones or just. Uh, chemicals get secreted and, you know, we can feel like we're coming out of our skin when certain things happen. It's very hard to be mindful and responsive in that kind of situation. So sometimes we have to actually respond on a physical level. 
on the love of the body, do exercise, take, you know, take a long walk or whatever. Sometimes we have to sleep, go, you know, just have the rest of sleep to come back to balance. So that's the first way to work with thoughts and emotions. It's really to ask, am I in balance? If I'm not in balance, what can I do to come back to balance? Really, really crucial. Because, you know, two weeks from now, you may have learned and really developed in mindfulness and in skillful speech. And if a situation comes up and you're really out of balance, the retreat is going to seem a long way away at that moment, right? And all those tools are not really going to be accessible unless you come back into balance, unless we come back into balance. So really, really crucial. It's really a good starting point to, for any practice with thoughts and emotions, particularly in everyday life. So then, if we have some balance, we can practice with thoughts and emotions. And we can cultivate mindfulness. We can develop that ability to be present, to uh, open up to what's happening with our thoughts and emotions. We can experience them a little more directly. Particularly, we can know emotions without all, you know, and distinguish them from all the stories and interpretations that we have. There's a really helpful model, uh, which some of you probably know. It's the model called RAIN, R-A-I-N. It's a model developed, I believe, originally by Michelle McDonald Smith, who is an old friend and uh, meditation teacher. And it is an acronym, and it stands for four stages, or four, maybe, maybe I should say four aspects of working with thoughts and emotions. And it can be very, very useful. And I think we'll bring it up tomorrow morning as well. The R stands for recognition. The A stands for acceptance. The I stands for inquiry or investigation. And the N stands for non-identification. So I'll say a little bit about all of those. Recognition is a crucial starting point for working with thoughts and emotions. We want to know that a particular thought and emotion is present. And just naming that it's there is very helpful. That's what we'll be doing more with the instructions tomorrow. Many of you have already been practicing like this for, for a long time. That we want to be able to recognize, to name what's happening. It's a starting point. So it's very valuable, even if it's hard to be with something that's occurring, to name it like is, in a way, gives a little bit of space. You know, I'm, I'm really, really angry, and I'm really angry, and I'm really angry, and I just say anger. And it may not feel like it's changing it much, but it actually shifts it some because there's some awareness. And then if I keep on saying that, and of course, other times uh, I'll notice something, I'll notice a thought, I can notice planning, or I can notice uh, being judgmental, or I can notice this, just to keep on naming and recognizing is um, an important starting point for practice. The A stands for acceptance, and it really refers to acceptance in the sense of Acknowledging that this is really present, not resisting something. There's a lot of times, particularly with challenging thoughts and emotions, we don't want it to be there. And the A means we acknowledge that it's there and we don't fight it. You know, I'm having anger. It's really here. I'd rather it wasn't here. But I acknowledge it. There's that kind of acceptance. Acceptance doesn't mean I accept that it will be here for the rest of my life. And it doesn't mean that I don't respond to it. Or I, acceptance means acceptance in the moment. Once I accept, let's say, that anger's there, I may want to respond to it in a way which leads to it dissolving more. That could be wise. So the acceptance is about it really being here now. It's really non-resistance to the moment is what it is. The I is, stands for inquiry or investigation. And that's the ability to explore 
the thought or emotion. Really, really crucial part of our practice to stay with it, to see what's there. If a thought, particularly an emotion, is here for a while, we can work with mindfulness to just stay with it and be present with it. Often, mindfulness, being with an emotion, actually takes us to what's beneath the emotion, or what we might say, using the language we explored this afternoon, to the value or the underlying need beneath it. I'll give an example of one time when I was really, uh, when, I, when I had a retreat where I was mostly working with anger. I had a retreat where I was angry uh, for 10 days in a row, almost all the time, 16 hours a day. I may not seem like the person who, kind of person who gets really, really angry for 10 days in a row, 16 hours a day, that's like 160 hours of anger for Donald. You know, sounds, sounds like kind of out of control. But, um, but basically, I was angry for ten, most of the time for 10 days in a row. And I won't so much go into the content of the anger, but I was at a retreat and I was really angry and I was working with Jack Kornfield at the time and he said, well, basically you can either go home or you can stay and, work, and be mindful and work with your anger and I chose to do the second. And I just sat with the anger, you know, or walked with the anger, ate meals with the anger, so to speak, uh, for many days in a row. And what I found was really, really interesting. And actually, after that, anger was never the same. I really knew it a lot better. You know, so sometime I, sometimes I really felt where my body went with anger. So I would sit there and I'd feel burning, or I'd feel, sometimes I felt nauseous. My body went to a lot of places with the anger. I went into a lot of different kinds of anger. Sometimes the anger was really, really petty and self-centered. And sometimes it was, I kind of went into like the anger as if I was an Old Testament prophet. You know, you can do what you wish, but in the end, cosmic justice will get you. I would sit, sit there on the cushion thinking that, right? So, um, and sometimes I could feel that when I stayed with the anger, it shifted, and I felt sometimes sadness. Like sometimes the content was, I'm angry, and then I go beneath it, and I felt sadness that pe- maybe people weren't listening to me, or I wasn't being heard, to use that language, which could, you know, could see it really connect with this value I want my voice to be there and heard. And then sometimes I would sit with the sadness and it would sometimes go into love or caring. Like I really care about this happening or this community or these people. You know, we could see that sometimes there is this deeper value of care. So sometimes with our mindfulness, when we stay with it, we can actually touch what's beneath a repetitive thought or emotions. Quite interesting, and touch that deeper value or need. It's very, very interesting just by sitting with it. And we can explore like that. And so that kind of exploration is very, very interesting. It can open up a lot. And one of the glories of this practice is that when we stay with it enough, we ultimately do that with a lot of the main emotions of human experience. You know, I mean, I've, I've had retreats which were fear retreats had retreats which were anger retreats, had retreats which were judgment retreats. And to balance the, the, <laughs> to balance the situation, I have to say that I also uh, had retreats which were bliss and happiness retreats, or very positive. So it's not, it's not like you know, those of you here for the first time, okay, you have to look forward to your anger retreat, your judgment retreat, your fear <laughs> retreat. Okay, just sign up right here. <laughs> I don't think so. So, uh, but so my experience actually is that it's rather balanced. And in the long run, in the long run, the happy and beautiful states tend to um, 
become more. So I just want to say that. So, um, but, but it's that exploration, that, that, that inquiry. It's really kind of a curiosity about experience. Uh, this is a famous poem from Rumi that suggests this curiosity about what we're experiencing and not taking anything for granted or being really careful about the stories we tell. This is what mindfulness does. Mindfulness lets us stay. Let me stay with the anger and watch out for the story I'm telling related to the anger. Mindfulness lets me know when I'm doing one or the other. Really, really crucial. This is Rumi from like what, um, I don't know, almost a thousand years ago. It's a poem called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. Mm-hmm. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So we can work with, the, we can work with thoughts and emotions through recognition, through acceptance, through inquiry. And the fourth is called non-identification. And it's a little bit like being a scientist. It's like we develop a stance in mindfulness of really being present, much like Rumi's poem, with curiosity, with a wish to understand, and not taking it quite so personally. You know, it's like, oh, look at this anger rolling by on day number five. Oh, very interesting. (laughs) Not so easy, right? Not always so easy, but it's that, that kind of approach. Oh, let me just look at this and notice where I get caught up personally or where it's caught. This really may be related to, I think, uh, your question, Angel, about when does the self come in? When does the self get, get thick you know, in all of this? And we want to study that. We want to, see, we want to really approach our experience as much as possible, just seeing it for what it is and notice when the self gets in the way or notice when self-image or a certain story makes it hard to just be present with the experience. As if it was, as if they were natural phenomena occurring that we're studying as a natural scientist. It's kind of that philosophy, you know, which takes some training to, to be able to go there. So how to take some of these approaches some of these perspectives about taking uh, responsibility for one's own experience, for working with thoughts and emotions with this model of RAIN, of having this curiosity to work with experience. How do we use that as a foundation for our speech practice? I want to you know, end the talk by uh, mentioning a few different perspectives on speech practice that, are, that either come from or are related to um, what, we've, what I've been exploring so far. The first one is that it's really, really important in looking at speech to see that in a sense there are five, at least five different possibilities for how to practice when we look at a simple dyad of two people. Two people talking together. There are at least five different dimensions of practice involved. And this can be helpful in terms of taking responsibility. Um, With any two people, we can have these five types of practice. Number one, I have my own inner practice meaning I can work, for example, in relation to what I've been talking about so far, I can work with my own thoughts and emotions. I can practice. I'm in relation with you. We're talking. 
or we have a, uh, maybe a long-term relationship, a work relationship, a family relationship, a friendship or whatever, something comes up for me in my experience, I, practice level or practice dimension number one, I can work with that. I can use mindfulness, I can use all the tools we're, we're, that we have here. Anger comes up, I, can, I have tools for that, I can work with that. And so, uh, dimension number one, my own practice with what's happening, happening in an inner way. And we can say that the other person also has that as a possibility. The other person may not be a practitioner, that may not be actually um, a real possibility, but at least it's, a, you know, ideally, when we have two people together, the ideal situation is I'm doing my inner practice, you're doing your inner practice. Then we have two further dimensions that we each can do. I can do my inner practice. I can also bring awareness to my speech. We can say I can do my inner practice. I can do my speech practice. I can be conscious about my language. I can work in that way. And the other person can do the same. And then the fifth area is that we can work collaboratively to be more skillful with both how we influence each other's inner states and our speech together. So for me, that's very helpful. When I work sometimes with people, it's very helpful to differentiate that. Sometimes we just look, okay, here's a challenging relationship. It's just challenging. But it's actually helpful to differentiate these different dimensions because one thing that follows from the notion of responsibility is that no matter what's happening, even if the other person is like a stone wall, and people are sometimes, some of my best friends, no. Okay. <laughs> um, well, all of us are sometimes like stone walls, probably, you know. And no matter what is happening with the other person, even if the other person refuses to collaborate, talk with me, try to work something out, I can always do two types of practice, no matter what else is happening. I can always do my own inner work, and I can try to be as skillful as possible with my speech, even if the other person is totally non-responsive. You know, I mean, I may choose not to be in relation to that person. That's, that's another question. But let's suppose that I am in relation. I can always do those two things. That's, I think that's quite important. Because sometimes we think, oh, that person is really this or that, right? And therefore, I give up my own responsibility to take responsibility for my own inner experience and my own speech. So that's, I think that's quite an important point. Then the second point in terms of speech is to go back to that point about finding balance. If I'm in a speech situation and I find myself out of balance, it can be very skillful, actually, especially if there are a lot of reactions going on, basically to take a time out and to come back to balance. That's actually quite an important, simple point, which I'm sure many of us, or most of us, maybe all of us do at certain times. We have a sense things are a little out of control with with our dialogue. We're both being reactive. Maybe it's better to come back tomorrow or come back in a week. And, um, you know, in Thich Nhat Hanh's community in France at Plum Village, people make a commitment, as if you remember the quotation that's on one of our handouts, they make a commitment to work with conflicts and not to just, you know, forget it. But they, they, there's, in one of his books, there's a beautiful text called The Peace Treaty. They make an agreement to work with conflicts, but they also say, when I'm in the midst of reactivity, I won't, I typically won't act. And so that non-action is quite important. And we can also try to do that which helps us come back to balance. All the things that were mentioned before. When we're, when we're out of balance. And so then, um, a, third, a third point I want to make is that there are a few principles which really come out of what we've been looking at that really uh, help tremendously with speech. And they're really very similar to what I was mentioning about taking responsibility and what we were looking at this afternoon. The first is, and we have, we, we've, I think, been beginning to explore this. The first is to speak out of one's own experience. 
that really follows from what we were looking at this afternoon and follows from the notion of taking responsibility for one's own experience. This also is very skillful speech because, and it takes some skill to do that as we were seeing, to really take a difficult experience, maybe difficult emotions, and be able to speak out of my own experience without putting the other person on the defensive. A friend of mine who sometimes teaches at Spirit Rock named Dan Clerman is, has, has actually himself with his partner uh, Moody Tanisker developed uh, a very interesting system of communication which they work with with a lot of different groups. It has a, some, quite a lot of parallels to nonviolent communication. There's also some differences. And I've, I, I have done some trainings with them. And they, they, use the, they call this uh, speaking out of one's own experience radical reflexivity. Meaning that, meaning that one's language reflects one's own experience in a radical way which doesn't go over and make assumptions and judgments about others. You know, and that's a lot of what we're exploring here in this week. How to do that, a lot of our conditioning that would tend to have us use language that makes assumptions, interpretations, and so forth with others. So... What's interesting about this is that speaking out of our own experience does tend to arouse a sense of connection or empathy. What's one interesting point is that this can occur even when we feel disconnected from someone else. When I speak out of my own experience about my sense of disconnection, it tends to be connective. Really interesting. How many people have known that from your own experience? That when you that when when I speak directly, I'm you know, and we do, and I don't blame the other. It actually connects with others, and I imagine sometimes people have had experiences with someone you're close to, where each person simply tells the story of what happened when something kind of some something broke down in communication or in the relationship, and when people talk out of their own experience for a sustained period, without making interpretations or assumptions about the other. And when both people do that, there often can be a lot of forgiveness and a lot of coming back to and actually being touched. It's a really interesting aspect that to talk about disconnection with another connects one with the other. Very, very interesting. So that's the first principle, speaking out of one's own experience. And the other side of that is to be really careful in our language about blaming, judging, interpreting others, making assumptions. Need I say more about that? It's a big topic. I'm, I don't know if I mentioned, but it's been, I've been very interested in what, what I call the judgmental mind. I'm actually working on a book on that. And it's a very powerful area in a lot of people's lives, self-judgment, judgment of others, and so forth. And it's a, it's a very hard training, challenging training, to speak in ways that are not blaming, not judging, particularly, of course, when we're triggered or reactive or challenged. That's quite hard. But that's, I would say, a second principle. And the third principle related to what we were looking at earlier today is when we're speaking and we can recognize both our own thoughts and emotions and those of others to see if we can look for what's beneath it. What's beneath the thought or emotion? When we train in this, we actually can become more intuitive. And it's actually part of what I feel I've got training in taking a teaching role. You know, that is very important for me to kind of have this deeper sense of where someone's coming from. And those of you in the helping professions do something like that. To not always take the words that are on the surface as the final truth, but to say, okay, what, you know, in in the teaching role, I might be to really feel someone's deep aspiration or feel their trajectory or to kind of tune into that. And it's really, in in a way, we get training in that. You know, and if one's in that kind of role, maybe in the helping professions, a teacher, a therapist, a coach, something like that, then we, we, we uh, learn to do that better. So 
it's in one speaking to try to see what's beneath the, beneath the thought or emotion. Is there some deeper value beneath it? Some deeper need? So all of this really is a long-term training like that, that um, account I gave at the beginning of the talk about what we find in this old text where it says, this speech practice takes time. Some of, some of our trouble or our, the ways that we get lost or caught or reactive in speech can take a long time to work through. And so and I think we have the sense that this is a training, and yet we can also really make major uh, moves on something like a retreat. We can really work the training. Sometimes we just get something. We get a principle. You know, it clicks, and then it's a matter of just Keeping, keeping on practicing. You know, and again, it's one of the reasons why I'm very interested in this kind of retreat in having follow-up groups in some way to keep people working because it takes training, it takes practice, it takes patience. And I thought I'd end with uh, one of my favorite poems. This is from uh, Pablo Neruda from uh, Chile. Um, and this is a poem about patience. It really is a poem about our practice. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. I'll read that one more time to, to close the, the talk. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So thank you for your patience and thank you for your fishing. And thank you for your walking, which happens now. And in any, any of these evenings, I'll just say, if you feel like staying in and sitting some here, that's fine. Or staying in for five or 10 minutes, sometimes it's nice. I like sometimes to linger with the energy of a talk or an evening, so feel free to do that. But we'll come back for... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.